0: Did you know you've already met 80% of the people you need to be successful? You have. And when you're providing a new service or embarking on a new business, your success will rest heavily on that network and how you leverage it to get the traction you need. I've helped hundreds of entrepreneurs wake up their network and successfully launch ideas. And now I wanna help you for free. Over the course of three episodes, I'll walk you through the steps I tell my clients to follow as they prep to rally their network and create the buzz they need. This week, you'll need to do three things to get started. One, download the big results toolkit. Two, download a list to your LinkedIn contacts or choose another source. Three, get that list ready for ranking. These three steps won't take you more than a few minutes, but they'll be invaluable in what they'll allow you to do, which we'll cover in next week's episode. To get started, download the Big Results Toolkit at robbysamuels.com forward slash toolkit, open the Wake Up Your Network workbook, and then follow steps one and two in the workbook. That's it, three steps to get the foundation you need to wake up your network. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest believes growth requires both vision and action. Her goal is to change the trajectory of people's lives and careers for the better. She works with C-level executives and other senior leaders who want to expand their professional and personal capacity, tackle bigger, more complex challenges, grow as humans so they can grow as leaders to cross new thresholds of performance. As an expert in executive coaching and career development, she coaches C-suite executives and other senior leaders across the globe. In addition to several venture-backed startups, her clients have included Clorox, DocuSign, Dropbox, and Google. She's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes.com. Please join me in welcoming Rebecca Zucker. Hello. Thank you for having me. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us from your place in San Francisco. Thrilled to have you. And as you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: Great question. I think I define leadership as Caring enough to step up. <laughs> and, you know, th- to me, that's what it really boils down to. I think I realized that I had leadership in me probably in high school, if not before. And, you know, I was president of the French club and active in sports and things like that. But one thing that really stands out to me is. You know, empathy is such a big part of leadership, also. I remember there was um, a student in high school, it was, I think, 10th grade, and he wasn't an exchange student. He had come from Lebanon to live with his uncle because of the war happening there. And as you can imagine, coming to a strange country with a different language, that's a really difficult adjustment to make for anyone, let alone a kid. And I remember my best friend and I, I, you know, I am, she was like me. We were the, the people who I could not sit there and let someone eat lunch by themselves and caring enough to go over, you know, inclusion is a, a huge value to me or for me and um, going over and having lunch with him and making him feel welcome. And, you know, I know that kids don't want to be different or feel different, but it was actually his differences that made him so interesting and made us really curious to learn more about him. And I think that was probably an early example of leadership that stands out in my mind to this day.
0: I love the simplicity of the definition you provided. Leadership is caring enough to step up. Um, I, I, I think uh, that could be so simple. I mean, I remember even just simple things, like if see something wrong, you know, like a sign falls to the floor that tells people where the bathrooms are, you pick it up <laughs> and you put it back in place facing the right way. Um, sometimes that's all it is, right? And other times it's someone needs to take, uh, take the reins and, and move everyone in a certain direction. Um, think about moments of like crisis, when, I, when something has happened, someone collapses and there's always certain people who just, not that they have medical training, Like, I always think my job in those moments is crowd control. Like, I have a loud voice. I have a big presence. I don't know anything medical. Like, I'm not that person, but I can get people to step back so other people can get in, right? Like, that's a leadership. So I love this idea because it allows everyone to have some agency and uh, in little and big ways, right? Your memory of this um, student from Lebanon really brought back something for me. When I was in high school, we had an open campus for 11th and 12th grade. And if you had a car, you could drive off and go get food and and eat it and come back for the next period. And uh, one of the lunch times, I actually had like multiple lunches somehow on one of my days because of my schedule. Um, There was a student who had cerebral palsy and he had an aide, and he never got to leave campus because, you know, his transportation was very complicated and I would find out what he wanted. And the period before I would get off campus and go get it and come back and we'd have lunch together. And there was a, a few of us that then like gathered and sat at the table with him. Um, and it just became a thing we did. It was really, it was actually one of the smartest students in the class. Like, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and the honors, my, I remember he, I st- my mom made me stay in the honor society. Cause I was like, who cares? She's like, you graduate first. Like you, you cross the threshold first and I have to look for you the whole time. And, um, but she cheered him going across cause she knew his story, you know? Oh, um, so I wouldn't have thought of that, but that like noticing and taking uh, caring. Um, and then the fact that you also took on like a formal leadership role <laughs> with your French club. Uh, I I imagine like, even if you went earlier to, to, to grade school and playground that you're, you're not totally sitting back and just watching, like you're actively engaging, inviting people in Um, what are those earliest memories? Like, are there, are there people who notice this about you and like are, are encouraging you to do more of it?
1: Well, that's a really good question. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can speak to what other people noticed way back then. Um, I remember, you know, I have two older brothers, and it's funny. This is sort of an example of pay equity. <laughs> we would each get allowance, and your allowance went up with age, sort of, or with time, however you want to think of it. And so I would keep track of what my brothers got paid when they were a certain age. <laughs> And I would insist or remind my parents this is what you paid them. So this is what you need to pay me now.
0: <laughs> wow. yeah so I was yeah.
1: always very outspoken like that um, which may have annoyed people I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've talked before on this show about how uh, little girls who know their mind and speak it uh, get labeled in negative ways uh, when boys little boys do the same and they're like good leaders, you know. Yes. yeah. Yes.
1: I was not allowed to play the drums as a kid because I was a girl.
0: Yeah. So, so some restrictions placed on you, did that also shape like what you thought you were going to be when you're like, you know, 12 years old? Did you, did you have a sense of what that was going to look like? And was that also defined by some of these expectations?
1: No, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to be at 12. I think, you know, all of these things, everything from teacher to artist to doctor, um, even to cleaning person, I love to clean at the time. I don't anymore <laughs> um, you know, would, would cross through my mind. but um I, you know, later in life after business school, I think you know, I went into investment banking, and I think part of the underlying motivation at the time, and it was not conscious. I didn't realize it till well after I left banking, was that. People, I don't think people thought I could do it because I was a woman. And my attitude is, oh, really? <laughs> Let me show you, which is not a good reason to go into a profession. You want to choose something that's going to be fulfilling. Mine was sort of like, you know, the hell with you.
0: Well, <laughs> defiant, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love, uh, you know, irreverent humor. I love defiance. I love people with that kind of strength and uh so and i don't regret that experience i learned a ton i made lifelong friends it was phenomenal training in many respects at a very young age i was dealing with c-level executives and i love the client service aspect of investment banking i think my uh, you know just why i went into it was probably misguided but it ended up serving me well so i don't know that i would change things
0: when you went into to college university before going into business school for your MBA, did you have any of that mapped out or like, at what point did that start to crystallize even the investment banking? And that's a, that's a specific enough role within even like finance, right? Like it's a specific thing to know you want to do. Was there a path in front of you or did you sort of have to find your way?
1: I found my way a bit, but when I went to undergrad, so I went to NYU to Stern School of Business undergrad and Um, I was an international business major, international business and economics. When I got there, I found out you had a double major. You had to have a specific discipline with international business, which made sense. Um, The irony is that this was the mid-80s and a language was not required. And they actually would not give me credit for doing a semester abroad because it would dilute my degree as an international business major. Of course, now both are obligatory. (laughs) So, but I chose international business because I had always had this kind of wanderlust of what else is out there. And, you know, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, didn't really leave the tri-state area very much that I recall growing up. So it, it gave me this intense curiosity of you know what else was out there, particularly internationally. And, um, and I realized in choosing business that whatever I did in life, whether it was journalism or art or medicine, it's a business. So I might as well learn about business. And that was my rationale. And I love business. I love the intersection of business and people which is why I do what I do. And even when I was in investment banking, I was, uh, you know, the clues were all around me. I was the first in line when it came to anything people related, uh, whether it was recruiting or training or mentoring. Um, I was always involved and loved that part of my job.
0: Uh, you were in investment banking for how long? Like how long was that career? About three years. So it, it's like a a lot. I mean, it's, it's a real apprenticeship. I mean, it's a living, yes. learning, yes. like yeah my I mean, internal organs
1: aged aged more than three years <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, yeah you can get a lot in in just a few years in, in a fast paced environment like that yeah but, but you knew pretty early on that it wasn't gonna be forever role for you. How did you start to navigate the next iteration of your career path? Uh, like, what was your thinking uh, about that
1: great question well, I actually um you know i I could have stayed and I could have been a really good banker. I don't think at the time where I worked had the training and development infrastructure in place to make those investments in people. Um, So I think, you know, I was just a casualty of just not investing enough in people who really have potential. Um, And there was a program where I worked um, called Mobility. And your third year as an associate, you could work in a different department and that could involve a different office. And sometimes that was an international office. And so I took a two-week vacation and I went to Paris and I met with the head of the Paris office of the bank where I worked. And I mean, the the subtle, but not so subtle sexism was just, you know, it's like, well, good luck, dear, you know, um, no one really taking me very seriously. And I, this was, you know, the very early days of email, I FedExed my resume to, um, the Paris office of McKinsey and, uh, who was notorious for interviewing anybody who worked at the bank that I interviewed at? <laughs> so I FedExed them my resume. I FedExed my resume to like the number two guy at um, Bank Perrybot at the time, um, who was like on the board of trustees at Stanford or something, and got interviews. And I ended up you know, I had the NYU alumni directory and I had the um, Stanford alumni directory where I went to business school, and I smiled and dialed and just pounded the pavement for two weeks, and um, ended up meeting the woman who would be my boss on that trip, and very serendipitously. I can give you all the details, but well,
0: this is so. This is interesting. So you you're making a decision that you're ready to leave this prestigious firm it's not quite a good fit. You, you confirm that you don't want to even like move to the Paris office.
1: Um, Oh no, I did. I did. It was just made clear to me that it wasn't wasn't, going to happen. So I, I knew that, you know, having not been able to, I guess, scratch that itch in college of living abroad, which maybe was a good thing because it led to another fantastic experience. um, I knew that I wanted to live and work in France Got it. And I knew that the only person who was going to make that happen was me. No one was going to hand it to me. So I just started connecting with people. I did, again, this was pre-internet. I contacted the, um, uh, or I wrote to the French embassy, or, or maybe it was the State Department. I forget, to find out what U.S. companies operated in France And I got the list of companies, and then I just looked up alumni at those companies. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Okay. All Uh, internet. We have to tease (laughs) this out a little bit because even today, with internet tools at our fingertips, a lot of people wouldn't think through these steps. And of course, for you, it required a lot more time because you were waiting for replies. You're not sure if your letter is even getting to the right person. And then you had to do research. And so you knew you had these two alumni lists uh, for your two schools. So the fact that you even have that as a resource and recognize that as a resource is something I want to underscore. Cause I think a lot of us think too much time has passed. You know, I don't know people in these other classes, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like they'd like talk themselves out of that resource. And then for you to write, to find out what American companies operate here and then match that to your alumni directories, And then, as you said, smile and dial, what's the, what do you think prepared you to do all of that? I mean, there's a certain, like, it's not just resilience. It's, it's a little bit of more of this, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Gumption like (laughs) that. No one thinks I'm going to pull this off. Well, I'm going to find a way to pull this off. But you know, where, where does that resilience and that gumption come from? And then did anyone guide you through any of these steps or was this you just kind of feeling your way through a process?
1: It was just me. It came from within, and it was just me and my motivation. And no, I always, I think, I always had a, a strong sense of agency, internal locus of control, that I'm in charge of my life. And I, you know, again, no one's going to knock at my door and just hand this to me. So, um, if I want something, I need to go out and make it happen. The one thing my father did instill in me is that he he would always say, "You make your own luck." So I think that that was, um, you know, part of my value system is that I need to go out and make it happen. And, um, you know, and this was also pre-cell phone. So when I was in France, (laughs) I would call, I was renting an apartment, I would call and leave a message and they had nowhere to call me back except for this, um, uh, you know, I guess I had an answering machine at home. I don't remember specifically, but I called uh, an NYU alum who was at Disney and I got their voicemail. And it was actually a shared voicemail box, which was strange. I had never seen anything like that. And the other person got the message and said, oh, they're on medical leave, but we actually do have um, two openings if you want to fax me your resume. And so I had to go to the post office to in Paris to fax a resume in, and somehow coordinated a meeting time with the director of finance. And she you know, ended up hiring me. I went back for a second round of interviews wow. maybe two months later. I played hooky from an investment banking conference and uh, flew to Paris for my second round interviews. And as soon as that job offer came on the printer <laughs> at work, which I was hovering over, <laughs> so no one else could
0: see it.
1: <laughs> Um, then I quit my job.
0: Right, which is another smart lesson is yes. to have the next job lined up before you leave the one you have, no matter what it is for the most part. Um, I'm trying to think of how to do all that in a, in a foreign language too. Um, well, I, I, had, I
1: hired somebody to translate my resume. So I did that. So you had that, and but I, still,
0: I had to go to a pharmacy in Barcelona to get something for my kid and had to like mime my way through the process. <laughs> I can I mean, do that in Italy and in France. before. Yeah, that. it's like uh, uh, you know, here's the, like the symptoms are, you know, like. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's also how you learn. I actually learned the name for the French word for rash is éruption, eruption, because um, I got a rash at the beach one summer. So.
0: So you learn as you go, but there's. Yeah. I mean, this would be difficult enough in an English-speaking country. Uh, whose customs you were already familiar with and culture you were already familiar with to do all this with all of that like intermixed, plus you're, you're working with like expats who are now possibly in Paris, plus people who were born and bred in Paris who were there like, in these companies. Like what an interesting cultural mix too. And how long did you stay in that role? Was that?
1: I was at Disney Consumer Products for a year and a half. And uh, they offered me a promotion and five-year working papers. I would have killed for the working papers. I wanted to make my life in France at that time, but uh, it would have meant uh, changing from being an expat to a local hire. So it was, uh, you know, let me think about this: more work, less pay. Um, Hmm. Uh, And I was already, frankly, working investment banking hours uh, for not investment banking pay. I might add. (laughs) So. That's when I decided to leave and I took a little bit over a year off and stayed in France so that was the fastest year of my life and um, you know I did a number of things during that time really to subsidize my living expenses but it ended up being and you know it wasn't necessarily a career move but it ended up being a real uh, pivot point towards what I do now and that I taught English for maybe 10 hours a week I did presentation skills at companies like Apple. I help people with their business school applications. I did interview prep for people doing banking interviews in London, did some random consulting projects. And what I learned was that I love supporting other people to succeed. So that's what really would light me up and excite me. And you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, it was also a really good experiment in being self-employed and learning that I could support myself and learning that I love the freedom and the independence and the control over my schedule. Um, yeah.
0: So what, what year is this? Just to give us a timeframe.
1: That was uh, that year.
0: Like late nineties.
1: Uh, it was 98, 99. Yeah, so I came 90s. back to the States. Um, I remember I showed up at my five-year business school reunion on October 5th, 1999. I do remember the date. And said, "What's a portal?" Because none of it was in France. I had to ask permission of the CFO of Disney Europe for internet access. <laughs> that was a, I was a manager, so yeah,
0: amazing. So yeah, so much. My head was so spinning was when changing. I came back to the
1: Bay Area.
0: Yeah, so was changing, especially come back and like all the tech that's blossoming here. Yeah, so that's over. That's a little over twenty years ago. So you mm-hmm. you're actually um, in an earlier wave of entrepreneurs because a, a lot of people two thousand eight was the point where for good, for good and bad reasons, they were yeah. no longer employed, yeah. um, and the bubble, and they had to like go and create their own their own fortune. Um, but I have actually talked to a few people who, around around two thousand, um, between like ninety nine and two thousand three, there seems to be another like renaissance moment of entrepreneurship, and you sort of were part of that. Did you know though, like other people in those circles, like when you started, you know, being being a gig worker, which is kind of what you were doing, like piecing together a bunch of different things is a little different than I'm going to run a business. Did you know people running a business that you could lean on and, and talk to? Or were you part of those communities when you came back?
1: No, not at all. <laughs>
0: wow. That sounds um, hard.
1: <laughs> I, when I came back, I really, I did not know which way was up. Uh, I would say there were a number of factors at play. One was just the reverse culture shock coming back not only to the States, but to the Bay area of all places. And, you know, the height of all the internet insanity, which as an outsider coming back in, it was like, you know, okay, people, I don't get all of this. This is like another distribution channel. (laughs) It's, you know, with crazy valuations and, you know, that whole bubble. Um, And I just didn't know what I wanted to do or what I could do next. And a lot of people were saying to me, Oh, you were a banker. You should do business development. And I was like, okay, what's business development. And I learned what that was and had some interviews and none of them really excited me. I started working with a coach myself and, um, I got a job at a startup, uh, I negotiated four days a week. I did not want full-time and I did not want to be an employee. I was a contractor. And um, so, you know, that job lasted about three months until it was revealed that the technology didn't really work. (laughs) And um, then I actually, I, on a cold January Friday night, I was down in the dumps. The guy I was dating had just drop kicked me into the ocean, as I like to say, (laughs) totally dumped me. And I dragged myself to synagogue for Shabbat services and didn't know anyone. And I met this woman, Katie, who um, to this day is a a friend. And she uh, worked at this investment bank, this tech-focused investment bank in San Francisco. And you know I told her what I had been doing, and she said, "Oh, send me your resume. My boss is looking for somebody like you." And nothing happened immediately, but six months later, they called me, and that actually resulted in a great job where I ended up running training or you know learning and development for a tech focused investment bank for the investment banking division. And it was a great job because I got to put all my investment banking knowledge to use, and I love the people side of the business. And really cool people. Um, And so I did that job for about a year. And then that bank (laughs) started to go under. And it was when I left there um, that I really started the coaching path in earnest. And um, very early on met my co-founder of my business next step partners. And um, we had actually met three times. And it was a third time where... uh, First, we were introduced. She was the one... She and her husband were uh, two people who were introduced to me to explain what is this thing, business development, when everybody was telling me I should do business development. So that's how I first met her. Um, And then uh, she was doing an informational interview with my boss at this bank in San Francisco um, about coaching. And... My boss knew I was very into coaching, and so she's like, "Hey, come down here." And I walk in her office, and there's Heather, my co-founder. And then I went to a conference and ran into Heather, and said, "Hey, why don't we get coffee?" <laughs> and um, so that's sort of the genesis of our partnership, and you know, the firm that we created together, Next Step Partners. We just had our 20th anniversary. Um, she has moved on to other things. Um, but we are still thriving. We're five partners, including myself, and have about 45 other coaches across the U.S. as well as Europe and Asia. So I'm officially unemployable.
0: Um, <laughs> believable story. I mean, really, um, you know, you kept you hit a lot of dead ends. Um, your your story reminds me actually a little bit of Dory Clark's story, and I know you and I share that connection. Um, I remember interviewing Dory. It was like every career path that she pursued went under. (laughs) She's like, going to be a journalist. That stopped being a thing. PR, everything went to social media. So, um, but you pick up skills and relationships at all of these points of your life that then serve you later. And there was something you said earlier as an aside that I want to call forward. You didn't get to go abroad when you were in college. And that of course, probably was a devastation at a young person, you know, when you really want something. But you then said it may have been a good thing because it left that itch still in you and led you to go take advantage of, of growth opportunities in a career um, later on. And uh, you know that hindsight <laughs> that we don't have when you're 19 and don't get your way. Um, but when like you, you're like, oh, I'll do this role three months later, it's not a role anymore. I'm going to do this thing a year later. It's not really a thing anymore. Some people see that and it's just like give up. But you were like, there's all these things I'm learning you, you got to do training and development in and in learning and development in a space where you knew a lot of the content, but you didn't have to work banker's hours. Um, and you'd already had a little taste of what it meant to do gig work. And so the idea of maybe going on your own wasn't horrible. I, I wonder though, about the idea of deciding to go into business with a person. Because I that to me seems incredibly challenging early on when you don't know what you don't know. I mean, it could be beneficial, right? There's things they know and people they know. So there's some way it safeguards you against being by yourself, but you'd literally met three times and suddenly you're like, we should talk about this.
1: Right. And, you know, I will tell you, it made all the difference partnering with her. I don't know if I would have ended up here uh, where I am now. Uh, I might be doing something related, but, you know, and and I truly believe there are many ways that we can be fulfilled in life. Um, And it's not just one thing, but, um, having a partner where we were really in it together um, gave me you know, so much more confidence and I think just served to really reduce a lot of the anxiety that would naturally be there. Um, not to say there wasn't any, but being in it with someone um, you know, gives you a greater sense of security. That you don't have to figure it out all on your own. And we completely complemented each other. You know, we were both extroverts, but other than that, our personality types were total opposites, which is why we worked so well together. Um, you know, sh- the first program that we launched, it was so this was right after 9 11. There were no leadership budgets. You know, the economy was in the tank. We created a, um, uh, a program called Career Action Groups, which was a six week course for business professionals who are in or considering a career transition. And it was her idea. Um, and she's sort of the, the big picture visionary, and I am all execution. So we complemented each other extremely well.
0: That's such a cool origin story. I got to know a few of your team when um, in 2020, part of my own, you know, reinvention story was the launching of this uh, four-week program to help people become more confident and competent using Zoom. And your firm was already using Zoom quite a bit pre-pandemic, but now clearly it was going to be a mainstay and you wanted your team to really up-level. And so yes. uh, you went through, I think you were in the inaugural yes, class. pilot. Yeah. yeah. You said yes to the pilot. And then I said, I'm going to give a hundred dollars to everyone you refer and you made back your money like multiple times over.
1: <laughs> yes. I took advantage um, of that.
0: You did take advantage of that, but you, but you were committed to giving them the tools they needed. And that's when I realized I didn't know before that just quite how big your reach was um, because most people I'm familiar with who are doing executive coaching, broadly speaking, are really kind of on their own, right. you know, maybe with some team members or some colleagues that they could contract work to, but you really committed to a much bigger experience and you know, five partners plus all these people that you contract with. And that must be a decision too. I mean, you you really have to shift from being the person doing the work to really being like having like, I don't know, like a, a leadership role in a different way. Like, what, yeah. what, what was that shift like for you? And how did you start getting guidance on assuming that different kind of leadership role?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, it was a very natural organic evolution as the firm grew. And we essentially followed our clients, uh, you know, geographically. And I, you know, you mentioned our colleague and friend, Dory Clark, whose recent book, um, The Long Game, I am all about the long game. So for the last 20 years, as coaching became, I would say, more and more mainstream and more people wanted to go into coaching, I would get a lot of requests for informational interviews. And I did them all because I wanted to meet good people out there and meet talent. And they may not have had the coaching experience under their belt, but I always said, you know, I sort of give them my best advice as to what to do and not do. And, um, you know, ask them all to stay in touch. And we, you know, found a number of really great people from, uh, from that group, I would say. And so that's, I'm always on the lookout for good talent and, um, mentoring people who I think have really, really, um, good backgrounds for coaching, you know, business backgrounds is one thing that we look for, um, diversity certainly. And, um, yeah, so I, I feel like I've been playing the long game for a long time, but it's paid off. Um, so always looking for talent because we are in a people business, any service business is, you know, it's your people. So, um, and, you know, my role at the firm, I would say 20 years in, I, you know, I sell, I execute, and I help manage the firm. I am doing much more of the latter and taking just really select kind of plum engagements um, and spending a lot more time selling and managing the firm. I mean, everything from, uh, you know, Getting our, uh, you know, data data security insurance to, you know, trademarks or, you know, just managing all the the stuff people don't want to deal with.
0: The really sexy stuff. <laughs> the Come on. Really now.
1: sexy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, we just did a, a for our twentieth anniversary. We just did a, a huge rebranding and website overhaul. Um, so that was a very heavy lift over the last year. I'm very glad to have that behind us, but, um, you know, these are big investments of, you know, time and money, um, et cetera. So my goal is to really create something that outlives me.
0: Yeah. And you're well on your way. Uh, as we, we've touched on this a little bit, uh, these, so much your story is about relationships and networking and, and putting yourself out there and making your own luck as your father would say, uh, when you think about staying in touch, you you know, you have your inner circle of people that you you know you're gonna gonna stay in touch with them. But I'm always curious how people think about that second and third layer or second and third tier out from that. These are people that maybe you see once a year at a conference or five years ago you work with them. And I should mention you you enjoy each other's company. <laughs> These are people oh, yes. you like. Uh yes. how do you nurture into seeing those kinds of connections, any habits, philosophies, or practices?
1: Yeah. Um, I think we like to call them networking structures and it can be anything from your holiday card list to, um, you know, pre COVID, whether it's a happy hour or professional event. I mean, those things are still happening virtually as well, but making sure you're doing regular things. And I I do believe in serendipity and I mean, I have a, a great kind of serendipitous story about, um, You know, sort of making a weak tie a much stronger tie in that I was searching my email inbox for somebody's email address and somebody else's email popped up who I had met probably five years prior and had had, and you know, we were introduced for business purposes, nothing ever happened. And I just said, you know, let me email them, see what they're up to. So they, you know, ran professional development uh, at their firm. And I just said, Hey, it's been a while. Um, would you be up for meeting for coffee one day? And so we had coffee and she confided that, you know, they never engaged us because we were too expensive, (laughs) but worth it. Um, I will add, but anyway, um, we have very good price quality ratio. Um, so I asked her, I said, what's expensive to you, uh, or what's, you know, what's, Reasonable or affordable. And she mentioned, you know, what they were willing to pay for a coaching engagement. And I said, we could do that. And she said, oh, really? Okay. Um, And so we piloted an engagement. And then over the next two years, probably eight more engagements came. And then, you know, I became sort of that one phone call that she would say, hey, we need to do a program on X. Um, and that program, you know, I handed off to one of my business partners and it was, you know, it was a seven figure program. Um, and it's all because this person's email randomly popped up in a search for somebody else's email. And I said, Hey, it's been a while. (laughs) Like you want to get coffee?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, you know, you took action, right? Mm -hmm. You made your own luck in that way as well, because, I, I, I've had that happen too. Like you're searching a keyword in your inbox and like other things pop up that you like are very long dormant. Uh, but then do you actually, you know, restart the thread? Do you, do you reconnect? Uh, some people, and I've met them and it's a lot of people I coach actually hesitate. They have all this like mindset gunk <laughs> that prevents them from doing it because it's been too long. What would they say? you know, particularly if they're searching for clients, if that's the mindset, like I need more clients and they feel like the only reason they're reaching out is because they're trying to land, you know, a, a business deal and that doesn't feel great. But you you reached out without a very clear, you know, it was just like, hey, let's reconnect. Yeah. And-, and
1: sometimes having no agenda is the best agenda, um, but it's okay to have an agenda. I actually wrote an article for HBR, um, how to email somebody you haven't talked to in ages or something to that effect. I'm probably not getting the title exactly right, but basically, um, you know, how to email someone you haven't talked to in over a decade, something to that effect. Um, and you know, guess what? They didn't email you either. So chances are they'll probably be really glad to hear from you. Um, you know, and sometimes the answer is no or are a non-response. By the way, a non-response is not a no. Um, you can give it another try or two, but then, you know, maybe let it go or move on to something else. Um, but you know, with now with social media, it's so much easier to stay in touch. Um, one, just keep abreast of what people are up to that you probably would not have had visibility into 10 years ago or more. Um, but also being able to congratulate them when they get a new job, wish them happy birthday. I mean, it sounds sort of, trite and superficial, but people actually remember those touch points. Um, Mm -hmm. and when you have those sort of, um, little touch points over time, when you do reach out to ask them about something, it doesn't seem so out of the blue.
0: Yeah. And I found the article, it's how to email someone you haven't talked to in forever.
1: There you go. Thank you.
0: Yeah. We'll put a, (laughs) we'll put a link to that with all the other links in the show notes at on You got a ton of HBR how did you land the HBR role, uh, and and you've also been successful at actually getting a lot of articles published? Which, getting one published and getting multiple published are very different, very different accomplishments.
1: I got in through an introduction. However, uh, I then was rejected five times with that editor, and I thought I asked the person who made the introduction, okay, so do they think I'm a total loser? Should I just stop now? <laughs> and I ended up. You know, I always thought I was a good writer, but this is it's a little, it's kind of different writing. Um, So I ended up taking a writing course with our friend Dory Clark on writing for high profile publications. And I also took a great course with the Op Ed Project, which is about getting underrepresented voices heard. Um, And that was fantastic. I actually took two of their courses, and then I hired one of their writing coaches. And that was instrumental in getting my first two articles in. And, um, you know, I got bounced around a few times between or amongst, I should say, editors. And now I've been with my current editor for a few years now. And we have a really good rhythm. And I'm, you know, fortunate enough where, you know, I can pitch her things, but she will also come to me and say, here are 10 topics. (laughs) What can you take?
0: <laughs> so uh, who, yeah. who, who do you find the writing coach through? Was that through?
1: Through the op-ed project. The they op-ed have project. their, their coaches and course instructors have like ridiculous credentials. And I've had the it, good
0: fortune of taking an op-ed um, that yeah, op-ed ah. course years and years ago. Um, great resource to bring back to the four. We'll, we'll put a link there as well, because I think it helps people think about their voice and they have something worth saying and how to actually be heard, in a in a noisy environment. Uh, right. So
1: teach you how to pitch also. They have some good webinars and, um, and it's very affordable.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating because I do know a lot of people you and I both know who are really, really aiming for HBR. Um, I mean, I, I finally did that. Uh, I will say that the, the editor that I was first introduced to with Dory uh, and she helped me craft the first article, a year of me following up. I had heard back three times, finally a year in the article was no longer relevant because we were entering a pandemic <laughs> and, um, yeah. um, but like I, it just sort of never happened, but then I had another editor that I was able to connect with. It's a lot of perseverance. Um, and I've had a few articles published and I've had the good fortune of them reaching out and saying, Hey, do can you do something on this topic? So right. I, I do think it does take a quite a bit um, to have that happen. And you have some amazing resources uh, that you've created. And I love, I'm, you're one of the people I seek out and try to share the stuff you've done. This is not one of the articles I knew about though. So I'll make sure to put this out on our social as well. So as we're wrapping up here, you, know, I, you and I have been in touch now for quite a while and we're gonna stay in touch, but let's say it's a year from now and we mm-hmm. have a moment where I say, hey, a year ago, I interviewed you. What what are you been up to? What are we celebrating from the past year? So what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? A vacation. <laughs>
1: um, but beyond that, I would say I just finished um, some research on uh, trying to unpack the inner drivers of overwhelm at work. And um, I'm working with a team from NYU who just sort of did the first cut of the analytics. So I hope to have more around that and potentially a book proposal. So we shall see.
0: Oh my gosh. That would be all amazing things to celebrate, particularly the book, which is a big deal. Um, But doing your own data, I mean, that's also a big deal and that uh, to have that all.
1: Two years um, in the making. It was a year to create survey and a year to collect the data and now analyze it and try and find meaning in it. And, um, you know, make it applicable for people and helpful.
0: Fantastic. I can't wait to celebrate all that with you. How can people find you and follow your work?
1: They can follow me on Twitter at rszucker Zucker, Z-U-C-K-E-R. I'm also on LinkedIn and, um, my website is nextsteppartners.com. And, uh, yeah, my email just Rebecca at nextsteppartners.com.
0: Fantastic. I'll put all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rebecca. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 291. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. I mentioned at the top of this episode that I want to help you create a list of likely prospects by showing you how to wake up your network. If you want to take your learning a step further, watch the 30-minute training video that's included in the big results toolkit you just downloaded. This workbook pairs with my book, Small List, Big Results, which is available on Amazon. If you read it, let me know what was your most valuable takeaway or insight. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.onthechmooze.com. Thank you to advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another town professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they build and sustain their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at
1: www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.